One quick message before I start the show. You can find all the links and resources for this episode by visiting the show notes on rickyrichards.com. If you enjoy this episode, do consider subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you're feeling particularly generous, you can help me to grow the show by leaving a review on iTunes. For anyone who does subscribe, review or share, thank you. I appreciate it. Now let's get into the show. Welcome to Ricky Richards Represents, the show where I talk tips for success with leading figures of creativity and innovation. Hello everyone, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the podcast. Uh, today I'm joined with Barry Chetham, who is also... Cheatham. Cheatham, fuck, I've just asked that as well. <laughs> I'm joined by Barry Cheatham, who is, uh, among other things, my boss. And, I, I was your boss, you're now fired. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> um, if I could start off by just asking you to introduce yourself and also uh, briefly sum up how you came to become the ECD of the game. Sure, I'm... So I'm Berry or Beresford, depending on who's uh, asking the question. So if it's my father, it's Beresford. Um, I sort of got into this business very young. My father was in the creative industry and I uh, sort of followed suit. I was inspired by that. And then uh, my path was set, I think, from a very early age. And I um, wanted to be in advertising or creative. Um, flunked everything at school, pretty much, apart from art. Had to go back to sixth form college and retrain on everything and get my get my results. Did a foundation course, um, which went well. I thought, right, graphic design was the thing for me. Um, got a job pretty much straight from college. Uh, I lasted four days. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't very good at graphic design, as it turns out. Um, much better with ideas and went into Wonderman Cato Johnson, did a, a, a little stint there. For, for about four months. Left there, went to uh, what was Carlson Marketing Group back in the day. They were based in Putney, had a um, job as a junior art director. Um, and after a few years, got a transfer to Minneapolis, had a wonderful year in Minneapolis, great, great sort of year and a half. Met some wicked people and did some great stuff. Um, from there, came back, uh, went to an agency that got bought by the agency I left. I thought that wasn't good, and I jumped ship to what was Billington Cartmel, and they were an independent agency that was only about 40 people, but it turned out to be the making of me, and I, and I loved it. And within you know, a few years, became creative director there, an executive creative director. Uh, did it for about 10 years, sort of left there as creative partner, so had a bit of skin in the game and enjoyed that but for me it was time to time to leave 10 years in one place not necessarily being the best thing you can do although Ricky I'm going to keep you for 10 years <laughs> and you Ollie um and left there wanting to go on the global stage which I promptly did and got a job at what was ARC and still is ARC but it's sort of rebranded as Leah Burnett um and I did that for four years, did an amazing amount of travel and got to work on some big global brands, which is what I always wanted to do. Uh, really got into the awards scene massively there and uh, did a lot of, I suppose, all my, my best work there, really. Um, but for me, the bureaucracy of a big, sort of cumbersome network became a little bit too much and the politics and all that sort of stuff and just how slow everything moves. And I wanted to get back into doing something much more nimble or much more me and, and that's exactly what I did and I uh, took a job at the gate as you know which is sort of going through a bit of a transition at the moment and what not- sorry to interrupt did you did you um 
did you get asked to work for the gate or did you actively hunt it out no i got headhunted for it um but it wasn't like it was an accident i mean the recruiter knew that what i wanted and the sort of thing that was right for me and uh it came along i thought it was a really good opportunity it was sort of a risk because you know the business had hadn't got a good reputation in fact it got a poor reputation um and it was time really to sort of fuel inject the creativity and and take it to the next level which i did i knew that i was able to take on a, a management team along with me so it wasn't just me doing it on my own and i could really rethink really about the kind of people that we had there and that so the stars were aligned so i so i jumped in and and uh, and i suppose time will tell but we're on a really good trajectory at the moment and doing some good stuff recruiting some absolute amateurs like Ricky Richard <laughs> um, so, uh, but, we're going, but we're going forward which is great talking about other amateurs mm -hmm. so Jamie came in with you or around the same time yeah um, did you know Jamie prior no um, so the third leg to the store which is Kit Kit Alton who's going to be the um, who's going to be sort of chief strategy officer and I knew her from my days at Lebanet and uh, there was a lot of contenders for for the job and I and I did have chemistry meetings I wouldn't say interviews I, I mean Jamie and I at the same level it's not it doesn't really work like that it's not one interview and another it's do we get on and we had a couple of meetings and we had one sort of three and a half hour lunch uh, very civilized. I didn't get hammered, and nor did he. <laughs> and uh, we thought, yeah, this is good, and and it seems like the right the right balance. He's he's very he is the sort of perfect foil to me, really, and really really complements my management style and my style of work. And yeah, he's a great bloke as well. So that's that's how that happened. It wasn't wasn't contrived in any other way. Wicked. So going right back to <clears throat> something you men mentioned early on, which was that your dad used to work in advertising. And he used to work at Gray, is that correct? That's absolutely right. He used to work with Tim Lindsay, believe it or not. Oh, wow. There we go. So <clears throat> people that will be listening to this will know uh, who Tim is from the last episode. But um, was there a piece of work that he did during the, the kind of time that he was in advertising that particularly inspired you in any way? No, not one thing in, in, in particular. He first took me into an ad agency. I couldn't have been more than about three or four and... Um, that was if you look at the last season of Mad Men, that's what offices would have looked like then. It was the sort of uh, mid to late seventies, and um, I walked into this environment and sort of not much bigger than the little sound booth that we're in now. And it was um, I was sort of dumped on a visualizer's desk basically, and he, he uh, it was wall to wall uh, magic markers, and the place sort of stunk of magic markers. But there was color everywhere, paper everywhere. It felt like chaos. And I just loved it from from there on in. So it wasn't really the work, although plenty of times I'd be sitting in front of the TV with him, and he'd look up from his book or look up from what he's doing, and say, "One of ours, one of ours, <laughs> it's one of ours." And in particular, I think that this is either when he was a planner, or this is when he moved over to British Telecom. He became marketing director of British Telecom, and he did a campaign about talking animals. And so it was an anthropomorphic campaign that had different types of animals sort of serenading each other and what have you and I remember distinctly this one with the two camels that were singing Are You Lonesome Tonight and that really stuck struck a chord with me and I and I watched it shortly before coming down here to sort of reacquaint myself I think it was 1985 so it's going back a bit but what's interesting is that was nearly 30 years before meerkats and various other animals and creatures in in ads and all that sort of stuff so yeah. 
So it was more about the environment. There's also his obsession with media. On a, on a Sunday, for example, he'd read the Sunday Times, the News of the World, the Observer and the Express. And the only reason I know those titles is because he made me memorise them before I went out and bought them for him. And then you stick them in front of him and that's sort of what he would consume throughout the day. So there was that. And he's also of the era of John Hegarty, who he knows, of course, knows Tim very well. So he's worked with some iconic people. Incidentally, he's never introduced me to any of these people. I found them for myself or whatever. But so is he is he still in the game? <laughs> no, um, no, not at all. He 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 went client side, um, probably in his late thirties, early forties, and and had a very successful career in, within marketing and marketing departments and things. And then he has his uh, has irons in fires doing various things and makes some money somehow but he he's certainly not in advertising he hears about it through me and for what i'm doing but not but not at uh, but but not in an agency or anything i don't to have him right <laughs> <laughs> so moving on to kind of uh, the actual agency environment and the team and your leadership and all that kind of stuff um, you once described your job as herding cats and i just wondered if you could explain what you meant by that yeah, that I um, when I was at Billington Cartmail, we had a very successful run, and I think at its peak there was about sixty odd people in the creative department. And if you think that many creative departments these days are the big agencies, the MNC Sarchis, for example, they're run by people like Justin Tindall and my wife uh, Jules. It, uh, they look after a, a, an agency that has a creative department around sort of fifty or sixty people, so they are big agencies. And I was probably in my early early thirties, mid thirties, and and I think that the reason it was like herding cats more than anything is that I didn't really know what I was doing. I was making it up as I go along, and to a certain extent, I still do that. But um, so there was dozens of people, and many of the people I recruited, I had a real policy about investing in youth, and I still do. Um, so I went to see lots of universities, and that's how I got new talent in. I just wanted to have fresh talent in, but also talent that wasn't too much more senior than me and could probably see the fault in my in my ways the error of my ways so um so about 30 percent of the department were were graduates um probably under about 25 and you know 25 year olds are like they're, they're like herding cats they're, they're, <laughs> they they do what they want to do and um and it's difficult to manage and it wasn't a very structured environment and, and even to this day i don't like creative departments that feel very structured and linear i want them to be organic and i want people to find creativity in everything that they do and and i think that that environment is what creates a certain amount of chaos which is hence the what it's like herding cats but it's also what it's like um uh, to, to generate great work going back to you talking about kind of uh, reaching out to graduates and that kind of thing when uh, in the few experiences I've had kind of going to visit universities, I seem to find that whilst graduates seem to think they're very original and different, that actually they're, they're very similar in lots of respects and that um, their ideas are quite similar and they miss out a ton of considerations, which obviously not everyone has to learn the hard way, I guess. But um, I don't necessarily know if that lends itself to graduates being the most creative. And I was interested to get your opinion on that. Yeah, I, th- I think you, you, you're right to a certain degree, but probably being a bit harsh, slightly melodramatic in, in, in some respects, in that um, when you go into a university or a college, and they're, they're, of a, they're all of a certain age, generally speaking. 
Uh, and with that becomes there's a certain sphere of influence and uh, inspiration for, for many of these people. So a lot of the work is um, slightly ubiquitous. It all feels a bit samey. They've all got the same sort of approach. But in any of these environments, there is always the odd outlier and the odd person that really rises to the top and rises to to the challenge. And it might not necessarily be through their work. It's through their energy or through their enthusiasm, their passion, their attitude. And it's those people that I think you identify as the ones they're going to be, they're the ones that are going to go far. So uh, when I go off and do a talk, there's always five or six that will contact me prior or afterwards and say, that was good, or I was inspired, or maybe not, or could you give me a job, or could you look at my work? They're the ones that you that you think, yeah, there's something about you because you've got that spirit. Um, and I might come on to this later, but you talk about, I talk about, the sort of people that I want to work with and they're the people that have a really good balance of the right attitude and, and the right and the right sort of talent too much talent and not enough of the good attitude is is a problem or if it's all bad attitude and little talent don't want to know so so in answer to your question I think you're slightly harsh but um I don't think it's a I don't think it's a bad thing I think it's just it's just natural some people will rise to the top it's, there's no difference between that and if you go into uh, a youth academy, a football club, or a rugby club, you'll see the ones that are going to make it. I think uh, pulling out just one tiny little part in that, which I think is really interesting, which is this idea of actually following up with speakers, because the amount of times that people follow up with you and they tend to be the ones that you form some form of relationship with, that you would, you know, try and push them in the right direction. Yet the amount of people that actually do, it tends to be a tiny fraction. So just for anyone that's listening, I think it's, uh, you know, if you're in that part of your career where you're trying to reach out to people or you should be doing so, but you feel reluctant to, basically people behind the facade of their big uh, ivory castle or whatever are actually really approachable and still go for a coffee every morning and all that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I, you know, I want to talk into that. I think that I think you're, you've got the best intentions. I think some people don't do enough of that. I think people forget where they come from and they forget that, once they somebody took a chance on them and and that's exactly what I got I got a lucky break because somebody believed in me I I wasn't good you know I worked really really hard and that person sort of took a took a flyer and said well we'll we'll give him a give him a chance see how he gets on and and I got onto the road and and I was successful because someone believed in me but I don't think there's enough people uh, investing in youth and just taking the time and I know we make the excuse we're all busy etc but it doesn't take much to return an email I return pretty much every email I'm ever sent. You talk about this, uh, your philosophy of creative departments being like an ideas democracy. Mm. And I just thought it'd be nice if you could explore that a little bit. <clears throat> yeah, I think first up, I try not to have a creative department. I try to have a creative collective. So there's a bunch of people that all, are all similar minded and want to do great stuff. What I believe in passionately is a creative agency. So I think it's incumbent not on one single department to come up with all the answers. I think great, great ideas and great um, answers can come from anywhere in the business. And that could be the person that's front of house sitting on reception, or it could be um, uh, some account handler, it could be planners, it could be anybody. So uh, that's what I try to instill in, in agencies I work with, that we're a creative company, not a creative department. And there is, a, there's, I think, a profound difference. So that's that's what I like to to foster. I want to foster that belief that everybody's entitled to come up with come up with the goods. But by the same token, on the flip side to that, 
which is worth mentioning. I think that creatives should be accountable for the commercials as well, the commercial aspects of the business, that they understand that they are running a business as much as they are working in a business. They're, they're not just off on their own sort of creative uh, creative wet dream. They've got to actually turn it into some sort of reality and, and, they, and we are being paid at the, paid at the end of it. So there is, a, there is, of course, a balance, but broadly speaking, I want uh, yeah, what you, what you rightly say is an ideas democracy. Uh, slightly going off topic a little bit, but something that I just was curious to know because uh, in the numerous creative departments I've worked in, there's never ever been somebody who's come up to me and, and uh, informed me of kind of new opportunities that are emerging within, say, digital media or even uh, kind of media outside of, of that. So even if it's billboards, it might be, for example, I once got told that um, if a campaign's pulled last minute that you can sometimes fill spaces for much cheaper, which may seem like a really trivial thing, but there might be an opportunity there. And there's some kind of names within the marketing, tech, advertising space, people like Gary Vaynerchuk, who have kind of made their, their, their uh, success off of the back of this kind of underpaid media. Hmm. And whose role do you think that is within an agency to kind of inform everyone of these opportunities. Uh, good question. I don't think it's. I don't think there's a sort of a role that's dedicated to doing that. I think there's a there's a sort of saying in um, some sort of business philosophy that if not you, then who? So if it's not you that's coming up with the entrepreneurial ideas and spotting opportunities, then then who does? So um, my advice on that is not to wait for the opportunity or wait for someone to tell you. Is to find it, find out, and then be the ambassador of this idea and bring it into the agency hey, and say, guys, we should be doing this. There is very few amongst us, particularly in a leadership point of view, that would shun that attitude and that, that, that energy and that entrepreneurial spirit. We want people to be bringing new ideas to us and new opportunities. So, yeah, I, I, I totally would um, uh, support and actively encourage anybody to come up with be be that person. I mean, that person doesn't necessarily exist. And don't forget, you're in a an environment where we're cutting back, cutting back. Clients want more stuff, generally speaking, for a lot less money. So, big fatty agencies with those sorts of departments that can invest in new stuff, innovation, uh, just willy nilly is, is is rare. You you've got to be able to pay for it. It's got to be financed in some way. So, if you're the person finding these sorts of things, a you'll go far, but b you'll take your agency very far as well so it's it's incumbent on you not not necessarily the agency i think to 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 find these ideas and these these sort of new new modes of communication um again taking a slight tangent but if you could talk about so there's two kind of questions i've got left with regards to team and it's uh what do you look for in creatives is one but maybe we could combine that with this idea of three people that you've kind of worked with in your in your career um, and what, what are the characteristics that of these people in particular that you've admired people you know role models I guess well I suppose I can sort of simultaneously answer the pair of those questions through the sort of three people that I'd have in mind the first person uh, wasn't called Russell Kane when when I started working with him but he's a comedian he's very famous but a load of people know him he's um, his background wasn't traditional advertising. Uh, he he came from I think he, you know I think he was actually a Rolex salesman or something before he came to advertising. And he just had the gift of the gab and 
was a remarkable writer. He was absolutely prolific with ideas and had abundance of energy. And I'd say that, I mean, he did give a shit. He mucked about an awful lot. Um, but he would, I could probably tie him down to about 40 minutes a day where he would do some work. And in, <laughs> and in that 40 minutes, I'm ashamed to say it was better than I could do in, in four days. He was just probably the one of the rare people I've worked with I would call a genius. He was... And is just something else. And if you look at him, look at his act, he's full of insight. And that's the thing that separates, I think, great creatives from just good creatives or average creatives. Great insight the, um, and just wonderful execution. And just, the, just his observation, I think, was, was just a joy. So he made my life miserable in terms of how hard I'd have to work for those hours and hours a day that I'd have to motivate him to do something. But my God, when he did it, he he really delivered. So he was something else. Uh, another guy I massively admire is a guy called James Kirkham. And uh, James is, or was, the founder of Holler. So when he was in his sort of mid-20s, he founded Holler along with uh, Will Pine, um, which is a sort of basically a, one of the first sort of pioneering social media agencies. So, I mean, even now he's probably only 40, um, young, uh, had a lot of swagger about him, a lot of confidence, ooze confidence, but was bloody good. And again, his his vocabulary and the way he would th- look at the world was just brilliant. But what was awesome about him is that he could have been a wanker, and he and he wasn't. He never was, and he brought people along with him. Um, and on the joyous moments I've I've worked with him, which wasn't nearly enough in my sort of four years that I that I worked in the same business as him. He's now moved over to Copper Ninety and is a you know, a big player there. Um, but before that, in those four years I worked with him, he was astonishing. His his speed of thought was amazing, his showmanship, but above all, it was his contribution to culture. He created the culture within Holler along with Will, but he, he was the man that people went to and he was a really, really good leader, massively into diversity, uh, massive supporter of youth um, and, and just an all-round good guy. So people people loved him. And I think the third person that was one of the, who is the biggest influence probably on me is is Jules, my wife, uh, Julia Cheatham. So uh, her pedigree was BBH, VCCP, now MNC Saatchi. So she's no schmuck. She runs enormous creative departments, which are incredibly complex things to run. And she gets through brilliant work, sometimes against very difficult people. I mean, Justin Tyndall, for example, is probably not the easiest <laughs> person to work with. He's, you know, he's a god in his own right, but... Fucking hell, he's he's hard work, but she is really good. She doesn't take any shit, uh, but she treats people really, really well, whether they are upwards to her or senior to her uh, or downwards, you know, reporting upwards or reporting downwards. She was, she's brilliant with the pair of of those sorts of people. Um, So I admire her massively and I don't know how she keeps, keeps the energy up, but she, but she manages to do that. Uh, she's firm but fair in everybody in every dealing that she does with everybody. So that's that sort of sums up kind of the people I'm after. So it's definitely people that have talent, but it's it's, it's about the attitude as well. If they get if they are attitudinally right, I will work with them. I as I'm sure you know, I have a big sort of neon sign above the door that says no assholes. And I and I um, I hate people that are divas and 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 just are really bad for culture. And likewise. If clients are like that, I was asked a question recently, what sort of clients do you want in the agency? And I said, nice ones. 
I don't like assholes. I think the best work is done with with really good people that happen to be really nice people as well. Nice. Um, <clears throat> God, I got so sucked into that. I was supposed I was supposed to know what I'm talking about next, and I had <laughs> no idea. I don't uh, know what I'm talking about. <laughs> next, <really. laughs> um, so, oh, I can tell you what's a good little uh, segue is. The fact that you've kind of won 150 design awards and you briefly talked there about Jules, your wife, kind of mm-hmm. uh, getting ideas through. So you yourself obviously have been in countless client meetings and have somehow got hundred well enough ideas through that are worth as many awards as you've won. Yeah. Um, what is kind of the secret to actually convincing clients to run with Brave Work? I think the first thing is convince yourself that um, it is not all down to you. So although it, it says on my website, it says in, in other areas that I've won 150 awards, the truth is it's we've won 150 awards. It's very rare that it's my individual piece of brilliance or whatever that's won, a, won an award. It's about a, it's about a team thing. And in, in, in the team thing, I definitely include client. Um, I come from an era uh, sort of 20 years ago when I started in this business that Clients rarely got in, got in, uh, creators rarely got in front of clients. And they were seen as quite scary. So only very few creatives ever went to see them. And usually it was the creative director. So I was young and going to see clients. And I, and I quickly cottoned on that clients buy from the people that generate the ideas. They just do. And they, they have a bit, bit of a faith in them. Um, so all the best work I've ever done has been where I've had a relationship with the client. And the relationships, all relationships are built on trust, obviously. And they, trusted me and my judgment and and we got some really really good stuff away in over the over the years so that's what it's about it's about uh not just being brilliant because you will work with brilliant people and there'll always be people better than yourself but it's your ability to um work with a client uh gain their trust um in order to to sell something brilliant um on that subject like what are some of your favorite campaigns my favourite personal campaigns or campaigns I've just seen out there that I love? I tell you, I think it's better if it's just campaigns all round, like what of of any campaign that between yours or, or ones you've seen. Um one of the best things that I did at Leo Bennett and one of the best things that they did, they did this thing called GPC, which is Global Product Council or Global Product Committee, I can't remember which way it is, but what they do is they um set aside an area, uh, a location around the world. So it might be, I went to one in Berlin, I went to one in Bali, very lucky, where they fly in the creative leaders from many of the different agencies. So you'll you'll be around some 30 or 40 of the best creative brains in Lear Burnett. And Lear Burnett is one of the most highly awarded creative networks in the world, if not the most awarded network in the world. It's hugely, hugely high standards. So... I never. It'd be really hard to pick out one or two things from the many, many, or well, the hundreds of campaigns that I saw. But the level of craft, the level of thinking, was always just such a notch above, or a league above anything that I was doing, or anything that I do now. I'm, I'm, I'm sad to say. But what what it struck, what struck me more than anything, is that the work that I liked the best was an act rather than an ad. And that sounds a bit slogany, but. But it's true, and it's something that Leah Burnett passionately believed as well, that acts were better than acts. Um, there's this amazing thing that they did uh, in Paris where um, they demonstrated this. It's called Heat is Life. 
And they demonstrated the the power of heat by making a sort of I think it was a sort of a giant fish tank. It was in a in a mountainous scene, so it was cut in you know, snow everywhere, so it was freezing. Um, snow, uh, wind, gale, gales, etc. And uh, and in and in this tank they built a little heater, um, and they turned the heater on, and then things started to thaw, and then uh, seeds started to grow butterflies hatch from cocoons etc it's just a wonderful wonderful idea really really simple heat is life but what it was it's not just a, a lovely film it was an it was something you could see something you could witness something you could feel and touch and i think that those those are the campaigns that resonate me with, with the most so of my work i love things that that are really that are useful to people in some in some way so um, I'll give you one example for the RNLI. We printed about twenty thousand glasses that were placed in positions of uh, sort of like rivers and uh, coastal areas where people were losing their lives. So young men get pissed, drink five or six pints of Stella, then jump in the river and wonder why they die of cold water shock. So we could have made an ad about that. We could have done some TV. We could have made some um, posters, but it wouldn't have changed behaviour because a people won't are unlikely to see it and unlikely to believe in it, engage with it. And also, they just didn't have the money or the media reach. But just a very simple idea, print these messages onto glasses so that people can re- take the time as they're sort of sipping or gulping their pint to read real stories about people that died in the area where where they're having a drink. And it made them think twice about jumping in. And then the other piece of work that I love from my own um, back catalogue is I Saw Your Willy. Uh, from the NSPCC and the reason why I like that I still do talks about it to to this day but a it was quite a brave thing for the client client to do is about protecting children online um, there's a lot of sexting going on a, a while back so children taking pictures of their willies and what have you and and, and sending it to friends and and it was ending up online which was which was horrific um, sounds innocent enough and the film that we that we made was also a tool so it, was a, it became an online tool for parents to talk to their church children and bring, begin conversations it became uh, a tool for teachers for um for police or whatever to have conversations with children so it sort of bridged the gap between parents and kids in a way that you you couldn't otherwise do so it was a tool beyond uh, just an ad or something. So a lot of my work, and you will see this uh, over the course of the the next few months and years and what have you, is very much driven towards um, being part of someone's life rather than sort of a peripheral thing that you just see. Oh, that was quite nice, and then you just forget about it. That's no use to anybody. So going on to that, actually, um, this idea in our industry that you want something that's original, and I always believe that your inputs affect your output. Um, what is your technique, if you have one, for uh, sourcing kind of uh, original source inputs, inspiration? Um, well, I have a phrase, it's called freedom to pursue magic, which again sounds really wanky and a bit bit of a slogan, but it's something I believe. It's just one of the, one of the little things that I carry with me from uh, from the last sort of 10 years or so as a as a manager, if, if, if that's even more of a wanky word, but um, I believe that creatives shouldn't be coming up with the solutions at their desks. So in the case of the RNLI, the creative team, Ben and Milo, um, I sent them down to the coast for a, you know, for a couple of days or whatever to go and do fact findings, go and ask people about stuff. And 
find some insights and and that's how they come up with the work and most recently you might remember this um the agency the gate is is new it it hasn't got boatloads of money so we needed to put work up on the walls and the work that we were doing previously wasn't good enough so we made some art so what i wanted to do is send people out so a couple of creatives uh, and a very um handy account handler to go out to brick lane and remove a load of fly posters and, and make art and what that did is it 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 helps sort of inspire these people that creativity isn't just about being locked away behind a mac it's about getting out there and experiencing so as you're you've got your sort of scraper out you're tearing off a fly poster you're looking at the graphic design you're thinking about the texture you're thinking about was that a successful piece of communication was ripped up or whatever and as you're pasting it back onto the canvas you're starting to think creatively about stuff so my belief as i say um freedom to pursue magic is 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 true it, it's not about coming up with the answers stuck start to your desk it's getting out there and seeing stuff and doing things you otherwise wouldn't so whether that's going to galleries it could it could be anything but it's not being about chained to to your desk so another subject around the kind of work and if i was personally going to start an agency today i believe that one of the rules that i would do is uh this idea that we don't buy media and obviously as a as an integrated creative and media buying agency um do you think that's really naive to say that because the re- and the reason for that just to explain is that the the stuff that we actually consume that wouldn't that isn't being put in front of us by someone paying for it to be there feels like the stuff that people are actually getting to anyway and that they're finding ways to avoid the paid stuff well i mean the the glasses that I just talked about with the R and I are a case in point, aren't they? They become useful as your advertising, as your creative, but it's it's a creative output. But it wasn't necessarily the media that you were asked to to work with. Um, in terms of it being naive, yes, in some ways, I think that. So, if you work with a behemoth of a client like McDonald's, they buy their media two years in advance. That's how they get the best rate. That's how they get to the monopoly on TV and how they win win the wars against other burger chains. They're always front of mind. So there always there is always a need to have a certain amount of media. There just is, but I wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly support anything that you would say about the importance of um, of making your own media and making the what what you produce not being landfill, but being useful to to you in some way, shape, or form. So, yeah, I don't think if you were an agency that says right, I'm going to set up to not have media whatsoever i think it would look a little bit like you're untethered to to reality the reality is that there is always going to be a certain amount of media that's going to have to carry your message in some way shape or form so um i would long for the day when that isn't the case and we could all get rich um making brilliantly useful things to people and in fact that if you look at what the gates setting out to do we're, we're attempting to solve business problems for clients so whatever the problem is we come up with the right solution it isn't never mind what the problem is but the answer is a 30 second tv ad it for us it that's, that's never going to happen which is actually my next question which is this idea that so far agencies in the past have when it comes to getting a budget they produce a single ad and it feels like the start and end is determined by those 30 seconds or whatever and i i firmly believe that sequential content is whilst you don't necessarily see your returns from day one where you don't have a following, that if you can come up with an idea that repeats itself over and over again, 
that you can build a trust with an audience and you can start to get, uh, uh, what's the word? Uh, you can start to get a... Rhythm? Rip, no. Compound effect. That's the word I was looking for. I never would have got compound effect. No, you would never have got it. So just the idea that obviously you start with five and then 10, 20, 50 and... By the end of it, you've got 500 people spreading the word and, and then thousands, and, and it builds and builds. Yeah. And I believe that that can really kind of occur if you're starting from from the base and building an audience over time as opposed to just going for a 30-second hit and calling it a day. Yeah, it depends on... Well, there's a, a factor that unites both of both of those approaches. So both of those approaches are categorically wrong if the work is rubbish. So if the work is brilliant and it's a big boom and a big bang, then it will get talked about and shared and, and it will become memorable. So uh, WhatsApp from uh, Budweiser is a really good good example. It becomes part of popular culture. So you are, in effect, as an advertising person, creating culture, which is, which is wonderful. Um, however, if it's boring, turgid, people just want to turn off, and I don't care what channel that is or what media that is, people will... We'll turn it off. I do have some sympathy with what you're saying, though, that consistently producing bite-sized pieces might <laughs> might be the way to go. It's certainly one of the ways to go that we were looking at with the NSPCC. So, yes, we did a big um, I Saw Your Willy sort of fanfare launch. It was seen by millions of different people. But then there's bite-sized chunks of content that people were able to absorb once they sort of became familiar with the brand and realized that the brand is actually trying to help them on that on their journey so became much more susceptible but it was they were susceptible to to the communications because they were useful ultimately they were useful to to the target market so in answer to your question the simple thing is it's just got to be good no matter what it is i think there was a nice example with which started as a tv ad which was uh, the I'm on a horse campaign. What was that? Uh, Old Spice. Old Spice. Yeah, where they then took that online and had people submitting questions that he would answer, yeah. which obviously is slightly different. I'm talking about going from grassroots, which I guess probably works probably better for smaller brands and well-established brands, I guess. But uh, anyway, yeah. Moving on. On to. Uh, I'm curious to know what's the worst client meeting you've ever been in. Um. Yeah, that's. I've been in some bad client meetings. Been in some meetings where you've left with a tail between your legs or slightly crestfallen, where you've presented a bunch of work, where you're high fiving outside first, and thinking we've nailed this, guys, and you go in and actually you haven't. This is shit. So that's happened. But I think I'd like to look upon this as my worst ever client experience, and and it's sort of related. I was working um, uh, on a brand uh, that shall remain nameless, but the the spokespeople for this brand were Trini and Susanna. And so if you're not familiar with Trini and Susanna, they're the fashion, you know, <laughs> the fashion police. Um, and I was called by the photographer, Uli Weber, a brilliant photographer. And, and he said, oh, can you go and get Trini and Susanna? We're ready to shoot them, ready to put them on set. Now, um, I don't know whether you know Trini and Susanna, but if you, if you do, then this sort of story will sort of resonate and also make your skin crawl. <laughs> um, I uh, knocked on the door and, and went in. Now, their makeup assistant and hairstylist at the time was Gok Wan. So if you're familiar with Gok Wan, he, he sort of followed the same path as Trini and Susanna, but he wasn't famous at that point. He was just sort of setting out, really. He was just a sort of um, stylist. Um, now, he was on his knees, and both Trini and Susanna were sitting there with their uh, legs <laughs> apart, their skirts pulled up, 
and he was giving them a haircut. And it was one of those things that you just can't unsee. And it was a little bit like, you know, when you sort of get transfixed on a sort of a, a builder's crack as they're sort of bending, you just thought, I don't want to see that, but I'm sort of seeing it and my eyes can't, can't <laughs> see it. But they were facing me. He was, you know, he had his back to me and he had his clippers and his little clipping through their sort of foliage. And uh, it was one of those things where he should have just opened the door, slammed it immediately and gone, they, they need five minutes. But I, it was open and... Um, and I was trying to get the words out, but I was so stunned. I was—it was almost like shell shock. I couldn't—I couldn't quite unsee what I was seeing. Uh, and as a—and as a result, that's been the thing that sort of etched into my mind ever since. Um, ever since, and I—and I think that that was the, the probably the worst experience I think I've ever had as a, as a, as so a creative. When, when you see Got Guan, at least you can uh, say he earned his stripes. He—he certainly did that. That's for sure. <laughs> Um, our last question before I kind of get on some quick fire stuff, I think, yeah, and resources and that kind of thing. But I wondered if you could just lay out your aspiration for the gate for the next five years and uh, talk about your vision and why creative people, talented people, should work there. Obviously, as one of the team, it'd be nice to <laughs> nice see, to know that. Yeah, see where your vision is. <laughs> I think I, uh, hopefully I sold that to you uh, long ago, Ricky, or else I'd be in real trouble. Well, <laughs> so would you. Um, well. First up, I think it it starts with the top, doesn't it? Now, have we got the right people in place to to make this work? And uh, our CEO, Jamie Elliott, comes from Mullenlow. He's got a wonderful reputation. Brilliant, brilliant CEO. Uh, Great leader. Um, Hard when he needs to be, firm when he needs to be, but he's very fair. He's known as being a bit of a good egg in this business, of course, which you need. It's it's an industry full of arseholes. He's one of the really good, good, good eggs. So that's important. So the chemistry between him and I. Then thirdly, really, really importantly, is our chief strategy officer, Kit Holton. Now, she's brilliant. She's great at unlocking insights and brilliant with clients and writes incredible briefs and works brilliantly with, with creative people. So right at the top, you have the, the, the right management in there to sort of bring it forward. Not forgetting, of course, that our chairman is Tim Lindsay. So he's a wonderful ambassador for us. Uh, makes a huge difference. Um, so that's that's already good. The other thing that's good is that we have uh, the backing of a group. So much as though we are in startup mode, yes, the gate might might have been going since you know, 1996, but it's it's feeling a little bit like a startup, and that's exciting. That's when exciting things start to happen. It means you can take a chance on some stuff, and it means you can do some really really good work on potentially quite small clients here and there so there's some clients that your listeners would never have even heard of but we're able to do good brave stuff on it we're able to try and what we're doing is we're building the culture from the sort of almost from the top out and I, i'll never say down but from the top out so people that believe in in what we believe we have a word for our culture which we defined as boundless there isn't many agencies in town that can summarize their culture in a single word but we love that and we love the fact that people are now unbound and unafraid to try new things. So we're getting the culture absolutely spot on. The culture is primed for success. The other reason why it's primed for success is that the new leadership team will be given probably a good year to 18 months by all the intermediaries and clients out there. To say, what can these guys do? I'll take a chance on them. So um, we're moving out of the severe sphere in which we're quite confident and quite competent so the world of financial services and moving much more into different arenas so that might be fmcg for example 
um, or tech. It could it could be anything. So the reason why it's good and the reason why it's exciting and I think the reason why I'd like to attract talent is that this is a rare opportunity to to be bar- part of something that feels new, that feels start in in startup mode, where people can try stuff and fail stuff with uh, fail at stuff with absolute permission and blessing, where we can try new things, bring in new ideas, and if it doesn't work, we'll change it and move on. So if our proposition isn't working, we'll change it. If our logo doesn't work or our website's a bit shit, we'll change it. Um, and that's that I think is good and everybody has a role and everybody feels empowered to to build this company we're only 25 people Jamie and I and Kit want to probably get it to about 80 that's what we think the ultimate sort of number will be so for people joining now they're joining something that's changing that's growing that's adapting and evolving every single day every single week every single week I think something changes something new happens and that and that of course generates its own excitement so Little things like painting uh, the walls black in a couple of the meeting rooms and a couple of the areas out out in creative, etc., where people can write, draw, dream, doodle to their heart's content. They can put stuff up on the wall, put willy drawings up there for all I care, as long as clients don't get too offended. But the idea of this sort of collaboration, the idea of this sort of melting pot of creativity, I think is hopefully inspiring to to, to people. So I think we're absolutely primed for success and, and we're starting a trajectory and what's good is that week after week, month after month, the work is getting better and better and better. And as two of the people, so their confidence starts to grow and, and they start to grow as individuals. So will I attract um, top, top talent from uh, Adam and Eve or BBH at this point? Probably not. Will will we in uh, two years' time? I think so. My kid. On that subject, I think uh, we're actually going to start trying to get more uh, creative teams or uh, what they call interns in, stuff like that, aren't we? So maybe just as a throwaway, it's worth hitting us up if you're a creative team out there and you think uh, you've got the goods. Definitely. Uh, Lastly, just some quick fires with regards to resources and stuff. uh, Are there any books you would recommend for aspiring creatives? Sure. Um, I'm terrible with books in that... (laughs) I use use it as an excuse too much. I'm dyslexic, so I didn't. I not consumed nearly enough uh, literature as I as I should have done, particularly in someone in, in in my privileged position. But there are three books that I've read that I uh, that I love, and I wish other people would read. The first one's Creativity Inc. and you probably had this before, but it's a great read by Ed Catmull, who was um, sort of the founding partner of Pixar and he talks about the ups and downs it's sort of biographical sort of semi-biographical in some way so it talks about his mistakes um and also his his unbelievable successes as well and what drives him his passion etc so there's an awful lot you can glean from that uh likewise very American as well but Hey Whipple Squeeze This uh by Luke Sullivan so uh that was a very inspiring read one of my creative directors at one point said read this and I read it over my holiday and I, and I loved it and I um, started to find myself quoting um, <laughs> quoting from these books um, the other one is It's Not How Good You Are, It's How Good You Want to Be by Paul Arden which is if you haven't read it you can read it even if you're dyslexic and just like looking at pictures like I do then this is a read you can do in probably two hours and consume the whole thing it's, it's a it's a great just go into waterstones, waterstones and read it there <laughs> <laughs> if you're really cheap do that um and the last one i'd like to quote is the business playground so 
I've always thought one of the stronger aspects about my game is not not just being good at creative, but being good at the business side of things as well. Uh, and the business playground is written by Dave Stewart. So for people that don't know Dave Stewart, he was part of the Eurythmics, so massive band in the in the 80s and 90s. So he's an icon of the music industry. And he became a creative consultant. Uh, and he has a fascinating, absolutely fascinating story about how uh, how he how he was brought up, but also how creativity's played this omnipresent role in his life, whether it's writing music or coming up with ideas to sort of loosen the traffic flow around the LA or the congestion around the LA uh, one way system, etc. He's, he's, he's an incredible, incredible, inspiring guy. So I'd say those four books are probably the, the best, best of the best of the bunch I've read, most relevant. Wicked. Favourite documentary or movie? Uh, I'm going to avoid the obvious cliches like uh, Pulp Fiction. I'm going to opt for a documentary called Searching for Sugar Man. Have you ever seen that? I haven't. It's been one of those ones that I've nearly clicked on several times and not actually watched. You must. It's uh, it's about a guy called Rodriguez. who And, and the reason why it's so relevant for me is that he uh, was what Elvis was to us in Britain or to the Beatles, uh, to us in Britain, to South Africans. So my wife um, loved his music and legend has it that he shot himself on stage or that he died in a car crash and no one really knew what happened to Sugar Man. He was a huge success. He was a phenomenon in, in South Africa, without trying to give this away to you too much, but he... Uh, and he was a bit like Bob Dylan uh, in his writings, like Bob Dylan. His music is astonishing. So the, um, the 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 rhythm of this film is beautiful. Anyway, the the photography, the cinematography is gorgeous. The soundtrack is sensational, but the story and the storytelling is just unbelievable. And what was really good about watching this is that my wife had had genuinely no idea what happened to Sugar Man. Uh, so if you don't want to know turn off now but i will quickly quickly just take for your, for your benefit ricky but he um was found sort of cleaning toilets in in, in america so he was very really poor uh, hum, humble and two south african uh journalists tracked him down uh they went to his record label went everywhere to find him they eventually found him and you know he had this really humble uh background and uh and you know, this is 30 years after he was successful in south africa and they said you know, you're, you're Sugar Man, you're our hero sort of thing. And he was like, you, you must have the wrong person. He said, no, genuinely. And they flew him to South Africa where he is the equivalent of Elvis. He had no idea. He had absolutely no idea. This was apartheid era South Africa. So he would never have been welcomed into the country in the first place. But of course, post-apartheid came over and, and, and performed in front of an audience. He was never expecting this sellout, <laughs> sellout theatre. And it's one of the most moving pieces of documentary I have ever seen. And it's wedded some, wedded to some brilliant cinematography, some wonderful animation here and there. It's just, it is the art of storytelling. If I could make a film, it would be like that. <laughs> I can see why you're good at selling in ideas. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, I'll finish up by just saying, um, what's a good place for people to reach you? Email. I very rarely um, don't answer emails. So email. So. If you're if you're smart, you'll jump onto the gate website or whatever, or LinkedIn or whatever, and you'll find you'll find me. All right, wicked. And final, final, final question. Go unless on. you, is there anything else you wanted to add? By the way, or are you good? No, we talked about something that people should go to now. What what event? What's that one event that you should go and see? And uh, I've got to say, 
you've got to go and see David Hockney if you haven't already at Tate Britain. So if you took all the um, Tim Lindsay's, um, John Hegarty's, Justin Tindall's, Russell Ramsey's, all the icons of British advertising over the last sort of 60 years, you mashed them all into one person, there would still only be a fraction of David Hockney. Um, his work and his prolificness and his um, uh, entrepreneurship and and his versatility are something else. I mean, the guy is just a just a god. I mean, he's, he he is he's incredible. So, regardless of whether you think you like him or not, go and go and see the work because I think it it will pick you up and it will in, inspire you to just get out a sketchbook, you know. And I think that. What we don't do enough, and I've noticed you do this, which I'm really, really pleased about, is particularly the younger generation don't draw enough. They don't get out a sketchbook. They don't have a little notebook. And you look at all of his work, it all comes from something. He's always got that pen and pad next to him and mark making all the time. And, and that, I think, is deeply inspiring for anybody. So um, go and see go and see the David Hockney would be, would be the one thing I'd urge you to do. There we go. So final, 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 final question. Uh, and this is where you get to give your uh, your your speech that goes down in history. So, <laughs> oh God. if you could give the world one piece of advice uh, that would lead to a better and more meaningful life, what would it be? Uh, this is advice that I took when I was about sixteen. So, when I was sixteen, um, after I'd flunked all of my GCSEs, etc., my mum said, "Right, you've got to go and get a holiday job. You're not you're not sitting here." And I went went to my local job centre, picked up a you know, one of the little little flyers thought, right, that one earns the most money. I'll go and be a tire fitter. And and they said, do you want to be a tire fitter? And no. And they said, well, go to a local supermarket and uh, and go and stack shelves for for the summer or whatever it is you want to do. Because so, that is exactly what you wanted to do. Right? That's exactly <laughs> what I wanted to do. So I went along to the Tesco. That was the nearest supermarket from from the job centre. I walked around there, sixteen years old, got a job, and there was an amazing store manager there called Nazmian. Um, he was quite straight, quite sort of firm, um, but you know he had had put the fear into some people because because of that. And, and he grabbed me, age sixteen, and he said, "I'm going to give you two pieces of advice: never ask anybody to do anything you wouldn't be prepared to do yourself, and never be afraid of a bit of hard work." And there's those two pieces of advice I've carried with me since I was sixteen. So I wager that the reason why. I've been quite successful. It's not because I'm good, because it's not. It's simply not the case. It's because I've worked fucking hard to get to where I have, uh, where where I've got. Uh, and I think that those days, those sort of six years, believe it or not, I was at Tesco, sort of putting myself through university. Of course, supported by my parents, but I had to earn some money. I didn't leave with a huge debt because I, I was I was earning money. So. You know, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, and then all day Saturday, all day Sunday in a in a Tesco while I was at, at Croydon College, and one was in Tunbridge Wells, one was in Croydon. So I was no, definitely no, I was definitely not afraid of a bit of hard work. But what I like to do is think that I'm certainly no better than anybody else. So you'll find uh, I will offer you a drink. You won't offer me a drink if you know what I mean. I won't be making, won't be expecting anybody to make me a cup of tea, and that's how I like to pe- treat people. So. His words of wisdom back in the day. So uh, never uh, be afraid of a bit of hard work and never ask anybody to do something you wouldn't be prepared to do yourself are those pieces of advice that I've 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 cherished and I think that the workplace would be a better place if, if everybody lived up to that. 
Thank you, Barry. I really, really, really appreciate you taking the time out to uh, talk talk to me. And uh, yeah, uh, everyone, hit up Barry, hit up the show, share this episode, and do whatever else you got to do. But yeah, thank you, Barry, for coming on. My absolute pleasure. Cheers, guys. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to another episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe and share. I'd also like to invite you to an ongoing project called the Move Me mailing list. If you enjoyed the show, I'm confident you'll enjoy this newsletter. It contains links to all the great content I've uncovered each month, along with insights of any interesting opportunities I've discovered. You can subscribe to this by visiting my website at rickyrichards.com. A special thanks to Frankie Byrne and James Utting. They're the tech heads that make this show possible. The intro music was composed by Dom Stores Fox. And thanks again to Reese Chapman for introing me to Lou and Lizette, the wonderful folks at Factory Studios in London, where this show is recorded. Finally, wherever you are in the world, I hope you have a great day and keep creating. Until next time, bye for now. <laughs>